Hello, and welcome to another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. Often, we find early in life that the childhood faith that we're introduced to winds up not answering all of the questions or feeding all the deep hungers that we have as we grow. And so often, part of our spiritual journey is going to other traditions than the ones we were raised with to try to find nourishment and insight and wisdom. Anne-Marie Costanza is somebody who's been on a spiritual journey throughout her life, and it has taken her from her childhood roots in Catholicism at St. Patrick's Church in Ravenna, where I'm now the pastor, through many other experiences of growing in faith and religious and spiritual and meditation practice. Over time, her journey has taken her full circle as she's returned to the Catholic Christian faith practice of her youth. And she's here to speak with us today about how her journey has enriched her life and all of the many treasures she has brought back with her as she returns home. Anne-Marie, welcome and thank you for being with us today. It is such a, a delight to talk to you about your, your sacred journey. And so let's start at the beginning. Why don't you start by taking us all the way back to the beginning and telling us about your your time growing up here with your parents and your siblings? Right. So um, I grew up in New Baltimore. I am the youngest of four siblings, um, but I was the eighth Costanza to graduate from RCS because of also my cousins that I grew up with. Mm. Um, my dad, Santo, um, owned Hillcrest Garage for many, 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 many years. Mm. Um, so I, as you said, started my faith journey sitting in the pews of St. Pat's in Ravenna. Um, and that's, yeah, you know, typical growing up in Ravina. <laughs> and which means you, you're, you're, am I right that the garage, people have told me about the garage over the years and everything. It was not just a mechanic shop. It was a gas station as well. Correct. Oh, which, yes. which made you in a small town quasi-celebrities. Everybody knew the Costanzas, right? Everybody yes. knew. There was no, you were, you were known to all. Yes. You know, that's, that's why I brought up the fact that, you know, I was the eighth Costanza to go through Ravina. <laughs> <laughs> so when you would sit in that church, uh, on Sunday mornings, you, you knew just about everybody you saw around you. Oh yeah. What are those, what are those early childhood faith memories like as you reflect on them? What, what stands out? Right. Um, yeah, you know, I actually have two sort of, well, the first one is a really funny memory. Um, from CCD class, you know, learning about heaven. And I had this, had this distinct memory of just sitting there thinking, well, gosh, in heaven, I'll get to meet all these movie stars and TV celebrities. I can't wait to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was not a real in-depth um, uh start there mm. but um but i also remember from ccd class um 
Mrs. Hulsipel, um, was the first one who uh, introduced us to um, some real hands-on learning. Like mm. I, I just loved going through a Passover meal. Um, mm. You know, this introduction into you know where our faith started. Um, but you know, I also got disillusioned by the Catholic Church. Um, I don't know if it was early on, but I was probably 16 or 17. And again, a real distinct memory of sitting in church on Christmas and just, I couldn't swallow the story anymore. Mm. You know, I was a budding feminist at that point mm. and I heard again, the story of, you know, the Holy family and I could only see it through the lens of a patriarchal society that was, you know, forced children brides into relationships. And, mm. and I just, from then on, I did realize that I was going to church because it was what was familiar and I knew when to stand and I knew what to say and I knew when to sit. And I, like you said, I knew everybody around me, but it really didn't hold anything for my heart. It was just something I did. Yes. Yes. Did you, you know? did you share that? Did, do you think your, your family picked up on th that shift in you? No, I, I don't think we, we certainly never talked about it openly. Um, and yeah, and it just, and then, you know, through college, you know, whenever I would come home, yeah, sure, I I might go to Mass, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't really discussed, no. Yeah. And it's interesting, your father was a cradle Catholic, still is, is, is uh, oh, yeah. yeah, and your mother is a convert from, from a Protestant tradition. Yes, yes. So, um, right. And, and maybe that's even why we didn't talk about it because my dad actually growing up, he did not come to church with us. Ah. It was my mom who ah. brought us to church. You know, dad showed up at Easter and Christmas, but, um, you know, and I think if he probably reflected on it, you know, he was probably working 60, 70 hours a week and Sunday was his only day off, and I'm sure he really appreciated to sleep in. Yeah, um, you know, but that's yeah, that that's so you know, right? We were definitely Catholic because it was my dad's tradition. Um, my mom, in order to get married to him in the Catholic Church at that time, had to sign a piece of paper that said she vowed to raise her children as Catholics. Mm. Um, and bless her heart, she stuck to that vow. She <laughs> along, sure did. Along with her marriage vows. <laughs> so. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And she she seems like she's quite a fervent practicer now. And I, I say that because before coronavirus, we would have mass not just on the weekend, but also on the weekdays. 
And she would be present just as often as she could. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Yes. So, so you described yourself as a, as a, a young person with a lot of a hunger for justice, a budding feminist sensibility. Where did life take you after you left small town Ravina? Right. You know, it didn't take me far. actually. Mm. <laughs> Not physically anyway. Um, again, my, my mother, the wise woman that she is, will tell you that, um, that I have Hudson River water in my blood uh-huh. and that all I merely did as an adult was transplant myself within the same garden uh-huh. because in essence, I have lived within a one hour radius of New Baltimore for 90% of my life. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I made it as far south as New Paltz and out to Woodstock and up to Tannersville, mm. Red Hook, Rhinebeck, you know, Athens, most recently over in Hudson, and now I'm back in Catskill. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> this is, you found your ribbon of land that you love. Yeah, and I can't seem to leave it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because... Um, for those who don't know that geography, many of our listeners are going to know exactly where you're talking about. But, but it is a pretty beautiful swath of land, even though it is yes. this one-hour radius. You, you, you were born and raised in a in a spot that is surrounded by beauty. You, some of those places are in the mountains, and some of them yeah. are in the river valley. But all of them are beautiful. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It. This is a gem of a place. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So how, how did you wind up shifting away from that religious faith that your father passed on and that your mother was so diligent in, in helping you and your siblings to practice? What happened when you left the nest for your spiritual life? Right. Well, um, I like to say that yoga was my gateway drug. Mm. <laughs> It was the marijuana of, of, of practices. Yes, it really was. Um, I've said it to many people for, um, people of my generation. It's much easier to walk into a yoga studio than it was to walk into a church. Mm. Um, but I was blessed right at the beginning that my yoga practice was never just about the physical postures Mm. it was always infused with the sacred texts of yoga Mm. and one of the early things that i read in a yoga text was that we were all angels and that the yoga practice could reveal that to yourself Mm. and I was like whoa that sounds pretty cool like Mm. I never thought of myself as an angel yeah (laughs) and then um a central core spiritual teaching of yoga are called the yamas and the niyamas Mm. and they are they read like the ten commandments they Mm. are you know non-violence truthfulness, freedom from stealing, correct mm. behavior, freedom, freedom from greed, mm. um, cleanliness, 
contentment, self-discipline, self-study, and the devotion to God. Yes. And, and I read these and I studied and I was like, okay, this was, this was not how the Ten Commandments was explained to me, mm. <laughs> but these are the Ten Commandments. Um, you know, it was explained that these were simply practices that you could do just that, practice mm. to become a better person and develop into the person that God created you to be. Mm. And um, so I, I delved right in. I got two different yoga teaching certifications. Um, and after 10 years of studying yoga, um, I got really good at, you know, tying myself into a pretzel. Yeah. Um, but the other big reason that historically yoga was developed is that it was the, the thing that you did to prepare your body for meditation. Mm. And so after 10 years of the physical practice and studying the texts, I started to think that maybe I should really start practicing this thing called meditation. Mm. Um, but I had no idea what that meant. Mm. But at the same time, when I was delving into these sacred texts, the idea also emerged that maybe I should start reading the Bible because oh. there was this guy, Jesus, that I like remembered learning about as a kid that I think, you know, was talking about some of this same stuff that I've been reading about and studying. And I also um, came across the writings of Thomas Merton. Mm. And here was a Catholic who wasn't, was writing about listening for God and listening to God not about talking to him. Mm. And he's famous for that statement um, or that discovery that he just realized that everyone was God. And his quote is that, how could I tell all these people that they're walking around shining like the sun? That's right. Oh. And, and it happened to him on a day when he was in in uh, what was it Louisville, Louisville. Kentucky in the middle of a of a very normal downtown of a small city exactly and so so i had these inklings that that was that was the start of oh gosh you know there was this place i came from the catholic church mm. um but with the you know, intention now of starting a meditation practice. I used the same yoga studio. There was a woman who offered meditation classes. So I started going and was, was hooked. Um, and I, I would, I was telling my friends, you know, okay, after 10 years of my physical yoga practice, I'm really good at tying myself into a pretzel. <laughs> Where will I be? 
after I've practiced meditation for 10 years? Like, where will my mind and spirit be? <laughs> yes. Um, and I'll say I'm five years into a serious meditation practice. Um, and it has just blown open my world. Wow. What does meditation bring you? Right. So, um, meditation for me, many people, you know, in, you know, normal society just thinks of meditation as that you're trying to find emptiness, right? That's the popular belief of Buddhism Mm. is that you're trying to find emptiness and whatever. I don't know. There was not emptiness for me. The longer I sat and developed my practice, the more I, I, I didn't find emptiness. I found space. I found space that I could rest in. Mm. But that space was filled with a divine presence. Mm. And it baffled me at first. <laughs> I didn't know. I, I couldn't. I, I didn't. I didn't have words for it. Now I do. But that's what I found was that I, I could just sit in this space. And when I left that space and went back into the rest of my day, there was even a whole lot more space there. There was more patience. There was more open-heartedness. There was more generosity. Mm. Um, so much more self-awareness that I could be the witness to my day. I, I wasn't as much a slave to my impulses. Mm. Um and so I was rewarded, right? I was rewarded. The more I practiced my physical practice, the more, you know, flexible and at ease I was in my physical body. The more I practiced my meditation, the more ease I found in my heart and mind. Mm. Beautiful description. Beautiful. What a what a what an appealing thing for anyone to be a witness to your thoughts instead of enslaved by them, to yeah. feel like you can have an impulse but have some some space to not have to give into it to think about it first to yes oh I mean yes. who couldn't benefit from that? Is it fair to say for, for our listeners' benefit that what you're describing is? generic meditation or is it what we would call Buddhist meditation? Right. No, it is very much what I practice is Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. Um, and the, the other, you know, popular thing in our culture right now is the term mindfulness, Mm. um, which is a, is another is a, is a technique. It, it is a it is a piece of any meditation practice. But for people that are just practicing mindfulness, if your goal is to control chronic pain, chronic anxiety, an, 
a, a specific problem, mindfulness is, is going to cure, is going to help you cure that problem. Mm. But it's not a spiritual journey. It, I find people that I talk to and, and books that I've read on mindfulness is it's just targeted at one God, I, that's, I don't really have the words for it because I don't because I, I don't want to dismiss it. it it's, it's a valuable right. tool right but but if you're looking for a spiritual journey, you know here's the words. It's just like a yoga class can just be a form of physical exercise, but if you layer on those physical exercises, the spiritual texts, it's a spiritual journey. Yes. Just practice mindfulness without the Buddhist um, teachings on top of it, or, or is really the foundation for it, it's not going to be a spiritual journey. That's excellent. And you know, you know, the other thing, tell me if you agree with this. The other thing that I'm thinking as I hear you saying that is that if you're, if you're doing a practice for an outcome, if you're using it as a tool, then it's not the same thing as having a spirituality. Yes. It's yep. not just a lever. A spirituality may help you. It yes. may be useful, but it's not just a lever in your hand. It it's bigger than you are. Oh, so much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> so much bigger. <laughs> yes. I, I I am the tool in uh, yeah, right, in God's hands. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Mindfulness can be a tool in your hands, but if right. you if you do it as part of a larger spirituality, you become the tool in God's hands. Yes, I love that. Yes, no, that is, that is a gem. Write that down somewhere. I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is, uh, and you know, just that's. But you know what? That, what just happened for us right now? That's what the spiritual journey is. It's, yes. it's, it's realizing that there are jewels laying all around us and it's conversations like this that draw our eyes to the right spot to go, oh, look at that, look at that shining there. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So tell me, wh- when does a person get to say that they are a Buddhist? How much? Oh. Yeah. Can you be a, can you? Can you have a Buddhist practice and not be a Buddhist? Or does having a Buddhist practice make you a Buddhist? No. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, um, there are stages. There are vows that you can take um, in the Buddhist path. Um, and I have taken two of them. I, I have taken the refuge vow which is vowing to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, which is the teachings, and the Sangha, which is the community. Ah. Um, But because Buddhism is not a dogmatic religion, it is left wide open (laughs) how you want to interpret that. 
Uh-huh. The Buddha is simply an example of an exemplary human being who reached enlightenment. He's not God. <laughs> and so it leaves it wide open on who you want to take refuge with. Yeah. Um, the Dharma is just the teachings. It, the word translates as truth, wisdom. Um, and I think I've already explained how I, I really see wisdom in a lot of traditions um, that have led me to understand the wisdoms in Catholicism or Christianity. Um, and the Sangha is just your community. I mean, your community of like-minded seekers who support you and who doesn't need the support of those people? <laughs> um, yes. Yes. You know, the other vow that I have taken in uh, on the, you know, Buddhist path is the Bodhisattva vow. And in part that vow states that from now until enlightenment, I vow to work for the welfare of all. Oh. Suffering beings are innumerable, and I vow to save them all. I am going to work at reducing the suffering of all beings until I'm enlightened. <laughs> that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful vow. Talk about a New Year's resolution. Right. Wow. So, and and you know we that, that's a whole other path to go down about vows, and, but it doesn't. I, I've never signed on a dotted dotted line to say I'm a Buddhist. I have taken those steps because they were very appropriate mm. and, and continue to enliven my spiritual life. Yes. If if anybody asks me, and I have come up with this way of describing myself that I am a Catholic who practices Buddhist meditation. And I have found that there are many, many Catholics who also describe themselves that way. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so, um, so I have found a Sangha of people who, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not the, the odd one out, that's for sure. How wonderful. What, what, now a question for you. Yeah. Um, I know that sometimes when yoga comes up in Catholic circles, some Catholics get nervous. They feel yeah. that it weakens their Catholic um, practice. Another thing that will happen is sometimes people will have a loved one who has discovered something exciting and wonderful, but different than they've ever experienced, maybe say like Buddhist meditation, and they feel that they are drifting away. They are leaving the path, they're going, they're getting kind of, what, what would be a good way to say it? Muddled in with some other path, or you know, some might even say mixed up. You're getting mixed up. What do you say? What what gentle words can you offer as somebody who is a Catholic who practices Buddhist meditation? What do you say to people who are afraid of that kind of a phrase? Right. I 
can only speak from my own experience that, um, and, and my parents would attest to this, right? They were in that situation. They thought for sure, you know, they bemoan the fact that, you know, I, I didn't go to church for many, many years and I kept going to yoga classes instead. And, um, but as parents, all you can do is, is plant the seeds. <laughs> yes. you, you know, you, your children do have to follow their own way. Um, but, you know, for young people who are not practicing Christianity or um, not following the faith of their family, they, they are not lost. Their mm. journey isn't over yet. Oh. <laughs> you don't know if they wouldn't come back. Um, you know, and, and for those young people that, you know, who are feeling that pressure from their parents, <laughs> too, I, I would just say to them that you have to believe in something outside of yourself. Mm. And have to have authentic experiences if you're just living your life so that you can post it on Facebook you are whitewashing your life it's it's the the ah, the dirt and grime <laughs> where yeah. we discover who we are and and what is authentic in our life and that's what a spiritual practice is, is something that is authentic, not a costume that you put on. Mm. You might have to try on a couple different costumes, but your spiritual practice becomes your home. Oh. And, and it's, it's really, it's okay. It's a journey. It unfolds. <laughs> mm, I love that. I, you're and, not lost if you haven't arrived at your destination yet you're just on the way right. right yeah you know and right for parents buy your 20 year old a book of thomas merton's writings oh <laughs> you know? or or richard Rohr. i mean he's the other one right mm. now that um just explains christianity as a process you know this is the other thing as i'm describing my journey Christianity or you know the Catholic religion it's just sort of handed to you as a, a complete package like here it is that's it mm. Christ's life in the Bible doesn't show us Jesus's journey it shows us his journey from when he was already sort of enlightened until his death. Yeah. It doesn't tell us the messy stuff beforehand. Mm. Mm. And, and that's what, you know, the yoga philosophies and the Buddhist philosophies, they're very much about a process, an unfolding. Mm. They give the students the permission to not have arrived at anything yet. They, so yeah. 
these practices that that for me became my stepping stones i was given the freedom i didn't have to believe anything but here's the pieces and maybe nowadays if i went through a ccd class maybe it's presented differently but mm. back in the 70s it was not presented as an unfolding process of a belief journey it was just handed to us or handed to me as a finished product that mm. i wasn't ready for isn't that fair to say? You know, all those saints, the apostles and the saints and the uh, the early church leaders, they were allowed to have a journey to come to all those insights. And you were told that you just had to accept it all, sight unseen, experience untasted right. from the very beginning. That's such a good point. No wonder it's hard for us to pass on the faith through classes and books. Yeah. 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 So. That's really, it's a powerful insight. It really is. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, uh, I, I'm also aware that there is a real danger in telling yourself at any point I have arrived. That's right. There's a real danger because <laughs> your ego loves that. Your <laughs> ego would love to have no more to learn. And for you to be, and the other thing the ego loves that saying I have arrived allows is for me to be right and a whole bunch of other people to be wrong. That's right. I'm in, I'm in the in group and all, everyone else is wrong. Right. Uh, so tell me one of the, one of the things that you said that is really interesting because it's a word that um, Jesus uses at times in the scriptures but it's not a word that we Christians claim as much as some other paths, and that is enlightenment or enlightened. You know, we are, we are uh, in many ways, a religion of light. You know, Jesus is the yeah. light of the world. And yet, enlightenment is a word that we think of when we think of Eastern religions. Tell me, um, you, you made a vow that you would, until enlightenment, work for the welfare of all as, as a bodhisattva. Tell me this, what has the journey toward enlightenment been like for you? Is that a question that can be asked? What is it? How far are you? If right. might someone say from enlightenment. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. How far am I? So, so there I was 10 years of yoga. Now I'm, you know, 15 years of yoga and five years of, you know, a meditation practice, but Three years ago, um, I thought I had sort of an epiphany and um, was being actually called to religious life three mm. years ago. Mm. And ironically enough, that scared my parents just as much as, you know, not going to church. <laughs> but that's a <laughs> They were frightened about you not going to church, but you wanted to go all in. Scared right, them I just as much. That's right. That's oh, right. wow. So, so here I am, because of my sitting practice, this space that I had created in my world allowed this um, feeling to emerge that I I totally trusted and, and do trust. It was the voice of God telling me that I should seriously consider the life 
of a vowed religious nun. Mm. And so with very little outer guidance, but just listening to that inner voice, three years ago, I became a true seeker because I packed up my car. Well, before I packed my car, I spent months researching monasteries, religious communities that I could go visit, praying that God would show me, you know, my my religious community that I was ready to join. And these monasteries, were all of them Christian? Well, that was the thing. I Because... I still was honoring my meditation practice. So I had two Buddhist retreat centers and seven monastery, Catholic monasteries wow. on my route. <laughs> wow. Um, so my first stop was a, a, a Buddhist retreat center. And I spent a week, you know, seven days of eight hours a day of silent meditation. Um, and I thought my mind and heart was going to explode. Mm. Um, but that was how the journey started. One week of absolute silence. Um, then I showed up at a cloistered monastery in Massachusetts. Mm. And the nuns were all gone. They were on a retreat day. The schedule had gotten confused. So I arrived and there was like no one there. And finally I found the caretaker and he was like, Oh yeah, I'll show you to your room. But I wanted to run away. I was like, Oh my God, this was, Oh my, oh my God. <laughs> but I was like, no, 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 no. God got me here. He'll, he'll make this right. Oh. <laughs> um, and, at the cloistered monasteries, they do the liturgy of the hours. And that night was Vespers. The nuns had come back. So I walked into the chapel and they started chanting in Latin. Mm. I didn't do much research. <laughs> and I was, I was flabbergasted. I was like, oh my God. They're, they're, they're praying, but they're in Latin, and I don't know any of what they're saying. How is this going to be meaningful? Oh. And every just yuck came up for oh. me. Oh. And, I, and I sat there in the pew, and it was like, you know, the hand of God smacked me on the backside of the head and said, wake up, Anne-Marie. <laughs> you know, you've been listening to Sanskrit for 10, 15 years. You can start listening to Latin, um, and uh. you can meditate. You can sit here in silence and let these words wash into your heart. And this is your practice. This is what these women have vowed their life to do. You can do it for a week. <laughs> Wise. And yeah, and it just blew everything wide open. I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is God at work. And and I learned about the Psalms, right? I, just amazing. And so from there. I went to another cloistered monastery 
they did chant in English. Mm. Um, that was nicer. Um, but I was introduced to my first Catholic monk who was also a Buddhist meditator. Oh. I watched this man sit for an hour with him in adoration of the Eucharist, got in a car, drove down the street, and watched that same man take off his monk robes, put on a simple Zen robe, and bow to the statue of Buddha. And I, again, was thrown into mass confusion. How could this be? How could you sit in adoration of the Eucharist and then bow to a statue of Buddha? Now, this is a man who has... He's been a monk for 60 years. Oh, wow. And I talked to him. There was nothing in his faith that was confusing to him. He said to me very simply that God for him was too big to fit into any one tradition. Wow. What a big God. What a big God. That's exactly, if God made the universe, why do we believe that God can shrink into a human understanding? Right. Or one, wow. So, you know, I just, just kept feeding me all of these experiences. And then the next week, again, at a cloistered monastery, and these, this was a really small community. I, I didn't ever see the sisters um, until the last day when I finally had to hand in my key. I, I got to talk to the vocation director there, but... This one evening, again, in Vespers, sitting in the chapel, waiting for the sisters to start the service. And this was towards the end of the week. And I had been, the way that their chapel was set up, you um, stared directly at this five-foot crucifixion. Mm. And as I sat there that night, gazing upon that crucifix, again, the hand of God reached down and showed me that Jesus was God. Mm. Up to that point, I knew I believed in Jesus. I believed in the man. I believed in the teachings that as far as I understood them, But that night, my heart told me that in order for a human to die the way that man did, he was divine. Mm. And I understood. I I got it. (laughs) Oh, that's powerful. That's powerful. You know, because I think a lot of us, when we say do you believe Jesus was the son of God? We say things that are so confident and glib, you can tell we haven't thought about them. Like, well, of course, or sure. Or, well, I was always taught that, you know, rather than sitting there meditating 
on an image that made you say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, this means something on a whole new level to me now. Yeah. Yeah, it totally does. Oh, wow. What an experience. Do you happen to know how many miles you put on your, on your car, that pilgrimage journey? Um, you know, I never did calculate, never did calculate, but that, that monastery was down in, um, Virginia. Mm. Um, so I had gone from New York to Massachusetts down to Virginia and then and that was just before Thanksgiving so I did come home for Thanksgiving um and then I flew to Colorado oh to spend a month at a Buddhist retreat center so now I was committing myself to not just one week of silent meditation. I was committing myself to four solid weeks of silent meditation. Oh. And oh. it was the first year in my life that I was not in my parents' house for Christmas. Oh, yeah which was heartbreaking on so many levels, but I, but I was determined to do this pilgrimage and this particular retreat center is the lineage of my Buddhist meditation teacher. So it was very important for me to go there and, and honor that lineage that had given me so much and, and I knew could give me so much more. Oh, so, wow. So I made that sacrifice that I would not celebrate Christmas that year. But again, God <laughs> reached down um, and graced me with so much because Christmas fell towards the end of the second week of that retreat. And hard to explain to people, but it's very painful actually to sit day after day after day on the floor in silence. So much arrives in your lap oh. and, just, and just physically in your body. And that Christmas Eve, as I sat there in physical pain from, from what I've been doing truly physical yeah that's right yeah it, you know there was physical pain and just the, the the emotional anguish of having silence and oh there's so much but I, I it came to me to start praying to Jesus I'm mm. like okay Jesus was a healer <laughs> I'm sitting here I am in pain I love God loves me let me rest truly in God and maybe some of this discomfort will go away. And it was, it was dark out already. Um, and as I sat there towards the end of that night, it wasn't God, but it was Mary. <laughs> oh. There was a woman dressed in blue that was holding me. Oh, my. 
and I realized she was pregnant and, and I realized it was Mary. And, and there I sat on Christmas Eve being held and holding Mary. Oh. And, and you know, you know, when I, when I tell this story and you can't see my face right now, and I, I still say it and, and can't, Part of me doesn't believe it, but I know that that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and it and it doesn't make me some special kind of saint or anything. Mm. I just was given the gift of being able to again rest in this open space, which just breaks open your heart, mm. and so. You know, God gave me that, and it was the most religious, spiritual Christmas Eve I've ever had, yeah. sitting in a Buddhist meditation hall. <laughs> oh, I just love it. I love it. You know? So you, you, I mean, and I remember, I remember you coming off of that experience fresh, and you right. tell it, you tell it with the same amount of wonder today. It's still feeding you. Oh, it totally is. It totally is. And, you know, again, right, talking to people, you know, who think, you know, yoga and Buddhism is somehow, you know, evil or whatever. You know, many of those days sitting at that Buddhist retreat center, pieces of the mass would come to me and would, would endlessly play, you know, as a soundtrack. Mm. Um, I am forever indebted to the words through him with him in him in the unity of the holy spirit it was my mantra for so much of that retreat oh Um, through him with him and in him in the unity of the holy spirit for those of our listeners who are like i know i've heard that i know i've heard that i know it's part of the mass can you hear it if we say that that is, those are the words of what we call the doxology, where the priest holds up the now consecrated bread and wine that have become the body and blood of Christ. And it is the, it is the prayer the priest sings and that everybody responds with, amen, just <laughs> singing and acclaiming, amen, we believe it, we believe it. It's, Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? And that was with you in that Buddhist meditation hall. Right. Amazing. Amazing. And, and then if I, I say one more story from that, that month. Please, <laughs> please. Um, and we just celebrated, you know, the Feast of the Epiphany. So obviously three years ago when I was out there, I was also there for the Feast of the Epiphany. Mm. And... Um, there was another Catholic retreat center out there that I wanted to be able to go to, but I was not going to be able to go for a whole week. But I, while I was at the retreat center, I found out that that Catholic retreat center was only three miles from the Buddhist center. Mm. So I got up on the Feast of the Epiphany, and I walked three miles to hear mass that day. Wow. And <laughs> you walked three miles. And, you know, it, it, 
it did not seem, it, it just seemed like the normal, natural thing to do. But when I sat there and listened to the readings about the three kings and then the homily that was said, I was like, oh my God, I physically was a, a, um, a, a wise person today. I walked to, to Christ. You were one of the magi who said, I feel drawn. I am going. <laughs> so Show me where the king has been born. I want to go. I know. Oh, it's powerful. What an image. What an image. I know. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my. So, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask you, I, I feel that I don't need to because it's just, but I'll use it as an opportunity to put, you know, an exclamation mark on it, which just is your Buddhist practice makes you a much more engaged Christian. Oh my gosh, yes. Oh my, <laughs> for those who think it is threatening to your Christianity, it is, it is like a, uh. Uh, a stream of fresh water, like a well, like a spring under your Christianity. It very much is. Oh yes. my goodness. Oh my goodness. I am just so grateful. Now you're, you're not a very old woman. You're in midlife, but you're in, you're in, you know, young midlife and, and yeah. uh, you have a long way to go. I just am so grateful that not only have you, uh, been brave enough to go on this journey. You're sharing it with us now and you're sharing the insight for everyone that there's no such thing as being lost as long as you're journeying. Yes. And so you, yeah, yes. you, you, you actually can't tell us what's ahead because you don't know. Right. Oh, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. I hope people can sense something that I think is, is elusive from us a lot of the time, but is so important that faith is exciting. It's an exciting journey. It is, um, it is the most, for those of us who think that um, traveling all the way to Colorado just to sit in silence is boring right. or that, you know, oh my goodness, you know, or that not having a car, not having a calendar with, with a lot of things to do on it is boring. You know, I, maybe that's something that's interesting too, is that um, a quarantine and a retreat look a lot alike. <laughs> but if you've only done the quarantine version where there's no meaning behind it and no practices to withstand it, then you you probably never want to go on a retreat in your life, but you're missing out. You haven't really experienced what you thought you did. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Listen, I know our time is growing short, so I'd like to ask you a couple of questions that I ask everyone who, uh, who joins us on this. And I'd like to start by asking you about what you, as a, as a Buddhist bodhisattva, as a uh, Christian woman of faith, as a, as a practitioner of, uh, of these spiritual practices, what do you think of the phrase, does everything happen for a reason? Many people will say anything that happens in their life they trust is for a, a divine cause. Other people say, no, no, God, God doesn't make the things that happen. God just helps you through them. Um, what, what do you think about that? Does everything happen for a reason? It does. It's just that we, because we only can see with human eyes, we don't always see what that reason is in the moment. Mm. Um, and for me, I set the goal for 2021 to be my year of trust. Mm. You know, 
I've been on this journey. I am firm in my practices and I believe in God and I know he loves me unconditionally, but it's time for me to truly, truly rest in that. And the minute that fear or doubt or a challenge arises this year for me, my aspiration is that I can rest in the trust of God Mm. and relax and know that I, that I, that there's work I need to do, but that I can rest in my belief Mm. that it is all for a reason. Mm. (laughs) Don't therefore don't waste energy and resistance. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful. You have, um, you've been on a long journey and you've got a long journey still ahead and that's how this life is, is unfolding. That involves a lot of endurance, which is why we, we named this the profiles of endurance and you've endured through lots of ups and downs. What in your mind is the key to practicing the virtue of endurance? built on what I was just saying, the trust and knowing that everything is going to change. It never stays the same. Ah. I was also um, taught the Greek meaning of the word apocalypse this past week. Mm. The pulling back of the veil to reveal what is and Whenever we're enduring something, it's just, or whenever some disaster has happened, if we can think of it as a finger pointing at what is wrong, find the nugget of, of conflict, of challenge, and, and then you, you just work at that. That's, so it's not, it's not about bearing down and, and working harder. It's about working smarter uh, and seeing clearly, pulling back the veil so you can see what's wrong and with clearer sight work to make it better. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. And, well, I'll, I've got to say uh, that is, that completely takes the fear out of what an apocalypse is because the apocalypse is the unveiling of what is already there. It is not something to fear. It's something to know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, we have been on a journey uh, now at the time of this recording for about 10 months with this (laughs) and you know, a global pandemic that has been like a challenge to every aspect of life. It does though also, give us a uh, an opportunity to dream about what life beyond this could be like. For you, what are your best hopes for life after coronavirus is a memory? Right. You know, is is just to con- to not lose some of the authenticity of this past year again. You know, things have been revealed to us and in my own life that that are still a little broken. Yeah, and um, I don't want to lose sight of those things, and 
So to continue to live my life as authentically and just as real as possible without delusion um, and to finally make it to Sicily because um, I did have to cancel my trip to Sicily. Oh. So 2022, hopefully I will sit with more Costanzas because we do have relatives that we're still in contact with in Sicily. And um, so 2022, I'll sit and eat some pasta with my Sicilian relatives. <laughs> I, I picture it. I picture it like it's happening tomorrow. And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if you scout out a, a Sicilian monastery or two while you're at it. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, let's take a page out of the Buddhist book before we go, shall we? And let's just let our listeners sit with us mindfully and gratefully for just a moment and let us savor this conversation. I'm just going to ask everyone to, before leaving, to maybe just pause for a moment and maybe you'd like to just soften your, your gaze or close your eyes if that feels comfortable. Let your breath become longer and deeper. And let's try to, to really treasure the, the insider insights from this that spoke most to you. What were what were the things that you heard that are most on your mind right now? How do you feel about your spiritual path? How could it become more authentic? Since, as Anne-Marie said, your spiritual practice becomes your home. If you've been worried about someone who's not been going to church, how do you feel about letting go of the feeling or the belief that they're lost? What if instead of seeing them as lost, you could see them as on a journey that's not over yet? How much are you willing to let go of religious practice as a tool in your hands and allow it instead to change you so that you can be a tool in God's hands? What does it mean for that monk to have said that God is too big to fit into just one tradition? When have you ever had an experience of having God really present or having an encounter with someone from the other side the way that Anne-Marie did as Mary, our mother, held her on Christmas in that Buddhist meditation hall? Anne-Marie, we are so grateful for your time with us here today. Thank you for sharing your journey with us and for inviting us to join you on the journey. I am grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to all of you. May God bless you all.